while I am all for making your own series and establishing your voice sort of as an auteur, I also think there's tremendous value in getting old school classical training, becoming the best, most well-rounded actor, and really knowing yourself as an actor so that you can then bring that to whatever you work on, whether it's your own projects or someone else's. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Rebecca Metz is on the show. Rebecca is a classically trained actress who attended the prestigious Carnegie Mellon School of Drama. Now based in Los Angeles, Rebecca's television credits are too numerous to list in their entirety. But if you go to her IMDb page, you'll see she's had roles on countless iconic television shows since the late 90s, including ER, Gilmore Girls, Scrubs, Nip Tuck, Prison Break, Justified, Weeds, American Horror Story, Parenthood, Californication, The Mindy Project, and Criminal Minds. The list goes on, but this gives you a sense of the success Rebecca has achieved in television over the last two decades. The shows I've enjoyed seeing her in recently include Marin, starring Mark Marin, Shameless, starring William H. Macy and Emmy Rossum, Better Things, created by and starring Pamela Adlon, and Mom, starring Allison Janney. In this interview, Rebecca tells us how relationships she cultivated with casting agents right out of Carnegie Mellon yield acting opportunities to this day. We also talk about her experience working with the late Lynn Shelton, one of my favorite directors, and how Lynn's subtle comic sensibility, as well as the freedom she gave actors on set, resulted in a unique and special environment for actors. Rebecca also talks about her role on the FX series Better Things, one of my favorite shows on television, and where her character arc might be pointing in Season 5, as well as what it was like working with William H. Macy and Emmy Rossum on Shameless. Finally, Rebecca talks about the challenges of working on a television set during a pandemic and offers practical advice for aspiring actors. This was a wide-ranging discussion with one of the most charming, funny, and insightful actresses in Hollywood. So let's jump into my chat with Rebecca Metz. Rebecca Metz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I was uh, taking this time as we were getting our technology figured out to order something from Katz's Deli. Uh, I don't know if you've ever eaten there, but... My uncle used to work at Katz's. Wait, Katz's is is in LA or are you in New York? Uh, New York. Well, I'm not in New York, but I order it from New York. Maybe I should order it from Los Angeles. Ah, yes. My uncle used to work at Katz's Deli in New York. Really? Oh, yeah. that's awesome. I come from a long line of Jewish caterers and uh, <laughs> Jewish foodies. So yeah, my <laughs> uncle Nathan worked there years ago. That's great. That's great. It's one of the things that I look forward to every year. I try to treat my family to, even if um, we can't be there in person yeah. in New York, you know, it's nice to get a little piece of New York through Katz's Deli. Absolutely. I um I ordered that uncle, not to bring the conversation down, but he passed earlier this year and I ordered a big box of stuff from Russ and Daughters to sort of, you know, because we can't have, you know, funerals and memorials the way we normally could. I figured I would honor him with some Jewish deli, which I think he would have approved of. Oh, that's a great way to honor him. Yeah. And it is, you're right. It is nice to have a piece of it. I'm going to make latkes and matzo ball soup tomorrow for Hanukkah. Oh, happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah to you. Are you uh, in Los Angeles or New York? 
I am in Los Angeles. I've been, uh, I mean, I've lived here for over 20 years at this point, which is crazy, almost 25, my God. But um, I would have been to New York several times this year, but obviously that hasn't happened. So I'm bringing New York to me. Nice. I've had a lot of fun diving into your work and I've been excited about this interview for the last few weeks. And one thing I noticed Rebecca, is that you have an appearance on Marin. Yes. I loved that show when it was on. I was kind of sad to see it go, mm-hmm. but I was so pleased to see that you had an appearance because I went back and I rewatched your episodes this week. And uh, I know you only had two, and one of them was like a voicemail yeah. that, that you left, which was hilarious. But the episode that you were in where you were his drug dealer, Mm -hmm. I I thought it was just hilarious. Thanks. Tell me about your experience. How did you get connected with Marin or Mark Marin from WTF? And that's my point of reference for Mark Marin is is his podcast. I mean, that's kind of how I knew him too. And that that job just came from, you know, a regular old audition with um, cast and directors who I've known for a long time. And so you know, when you have those casting relationships, it's nice because they have a sense for what you're, what you do and what your sensibility is. And so they brought me in for that. And I booked it. I feel like I remember that it was, I feel like it was like the first job of a year early in January. I might be remembering that wrong, but um, uh, it was, it was a great day. It was great to work with Mark. It was their first, like the first sex scene that they'd done. (laughs) on that show and weirdly i had done them before so i was kind of Mm -hmm. um you know making suggestions although they they completely had it under control of course and also that episode was directed by oh my gosh how am i spacing on her last name lynn mark's lynn shelton girlfriend lynn shelton directed that episode yeah and um it was obviously who recently passed yeah yeah it was it was and that was the second time I had worked with her. She had directed me in an episode of Shameless as well. Mm. And obviously, you know, I'm, I feel so fortunate to have gotten a chance to work with her. Yeah, I had reached out to Lynn's representatives. And for about a year, I was trying to get their attention and try to interview Lynn. Mm-hmm. And then I interviewed a friend of hers named Sheila Andreen, who's a filmmaker out of Seattle. And then after that interview, Lynn passed away. And, and I was planning on doing like a memorial type of interview where I was going to interview all of the folks that I could reach out to who had worked with her, who were friends with her and knew her. And uh, it never came together. But I had so much admiration for Lynn and the, the indie films that she's put out with the Duplass brothers. And yeah, uh, what a loss to the creative community. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Shocking and too soon. And she was such a sort of, she was such a unique presence as a director, just because I, she brought really her own sensibility. And you can see it, obviously, in her independent projects. And, you know, a lot of the time, the directors you work with in series, that's where they're coming from, is working from television. Mm-hmm. And um, I, Lynn just brought her own energy, not only her own perspective, but her own energy, a unique energy to set. And um, yeah, again, I feel, I just feel really fortunate to have gotten to work with her. Yeah. The comedy that you see coming from her episodes on television, whether it's Glow or Shameless or whatever she's directing or the the indie movies, Mm -hmm. there's a real subtlety to the comedy. It's not slapsticky. It's not over the top. There's a lot of focus on 
awkward pauses and facial expressions. Yep. And that's what was so beautiful about your scene where um, <laughs> Mark comes out in the towel. <laughs> yeah. And, and this bemused look on your face where you're like, hey, we're, we're fiancés. And you look up at the, uh, the son of the guy that you're taking care of. And I think that's a testament to your comic sensibility, but also to Lynn's yeah. uh, sensibility as well. And and I think I remember that being not the plan for that scene. And I just sort of did that in a rehearsal. You know, one of the other things that I remember loving about her was that she made room for actors to have ideas and impulses and to try things. It wasn't just, here's what we're going to do, bang, 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 and cranking it out. Like there was room to sort of say, hey, can I try it this way? And so that, you know, goofy look on my face was something that came out of us doing a rehearsal or two. And there, there isn't always room Directors don't always give you space to do that. So that's something that I remember about that, shooting that scene. So when you got involved in the Shameless project, were were you a fan of the show before you got on board or did, did you start paying attention to it after you were hired? I was a fan of it before I got on board. Got on board. I had auditioned for it probably a dozen times. That's another casting office that um, has been really supportive of me over the years. And so, you know, from from ER was one of my first jobs, which was that casting office. And I've, I've done a bunch of shows that they've worked on. And so they were kind of, they just kept bringing me in until we found the right thing. And, and the year before uh, I booked Shameless, I was, it was between me and one other person for a major recurring guest star on that show. And it went to the other person. And, mm -hmm. you know, my agent called and said, they love you. They're going to find something for you, which is something that people say a lot. And you sort of, you know, take it with a big chunk of salt. But just a few months later, they they brought me in for the role of Melinda. And it it really did feel like they knew it was going to be me the whole time. Right. You know, so I just sort of did an audition, booked it, and I got to work on Shameless for three seasons. And I, I just had, that was a big, important job and role for me, that show. Yeah. The ensemble cast is amazing in that show. Yeah. Yeah. And they work to such a high standard. I think it's, you know, people might not suspect from the like chaos <laughs> that, that that show captures mm -hmm. so well. It just, it's just a mess at every moment, but um, the actual process of shooting, it is incredibly efficient and everyone is expected to be at a hundred percent all the time, which I love, but is, is not for everybody. I loved it and I loved getting to be on it enough that I started to really feel like a part of the ensemble and to have friends in the cast and crew and, and feel like part of the family. That was big for me. That's awesome. And it's such a fun series too, because it, I don't think it takes itself too seriously. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are moments where you're, you're really feeling, there's emotion there. It's not all chaos and, and comedy but you definitely get the sense that they are self-aware of kind of the absurdity of some of the situations and the extreme behavior that you see on a lot in a lot of the characters. It's a great storytelling device, I think, to have that dynamic. Yeah, and they really manage to like, you know, they're in, it's been a lot of seasons now, and they've managed every season to kind of ramp up the, the shamelessness without losing the humanity without making it unbelievable, mm -hmm. you know? And that's a, that is, it's hard to keep raising the stakes without turning it into something absurd. And they've managed to keep them believable. You, you, you never feel like they've betrayed the characters or, you know, that it's turned into a cartoon and yet it just gets more and more outlandish every year. I agree. I think lower socioeconomic class families are 
underrepresented on television and film mm -hmm. and certainly are represented in ways that really aren't accurate or that are just not fair. Yeah. The vision that you have, uh, the peak inside the family that you have through Shameless, I think it really does a service to lower socioeconomic class families because it reveals the, the chaos of just everyday existence mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, it does a good job of, you know, you can see them making terrible decisions and going, oh God, don't do that. This is going to go terribly wrong. And also you can see the things that are up against them that they can't control that are not their fault. So there's, you know, they have some culpability in their situation and some, a lot of it is beyond their control. And more than anything, you know, they feel like people we recognize, they feel truthful. They feel, you know, grounded in reality, which I think is what has kept that show so successful. Part of what has kept it so successful anyway, and what keeps people, why people love watching it. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about being born into that circumstance where your dad is a complete train wreck. Mm -hmm. He's blood and they're going to love him and, and he's going to be around <laughs> regardless. But I don't know that anyone else could really pull it off the way William H. Macy does. It's, I mean, he's, he's incredible. And I think Emmy, you know, Emmy's who I got to work with most. Right. And she, I think, really emerged over the course of that show as a, an equal to him, a partner to him in terms of carrying the work on that show, balancing the drama and the comedy. Right. Yeah, there's just spectacular acting on that show. And the directing from, from Lynn Shelton, circling back to that again, I, I got to work on episodes directed by Bill Macy, by Emmy Rossum. There was just so much talent in every department on that show, which is, is why it's been on for so long. Yeah. You mentioned that ER was one of the first <laughs> roles that you got and that there was a particular casting agency that helped you get that role. How did you make that connection with that casting agency to begin with? I went to drama school at a place called Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. It's one of the great drama schools in this country that I was fortunate enough to get to study at. And one of the things that uh, they do that, that a lot of the conservatories do is when you graduate, you do a showcase. So, you know, you go to New York and you go to LA and put together kind of an hour long performance where everybody, all the actors in the class do a scene and a monologue for an invited audience of casting directors and agents and managers and all sorts of industry people, which is huge because I think the hardest thing to do when you're starting out is to just get that first opportunity to be seen by someone to kind of get your foot in the door. And so that takes care of getting your foot in the door of a whole bunch of places. And um, that casting director, John Levy and John Wells, who is the showrunner of ER and Shameless and so many other, he's one of the, you know, the most prolific, successful, lauded showrunners in the history of television, mm. went to Carnegie Mellon. So nice. We are, and he, there's a ton of Carnegie people behind the scenes on all of his shows as well. And so um, they always, pay, you know, attend the Carnegie showcase and, and bring in the actors, give them a little help, give them some advice starting out their careers. And so that's where I first met John Wells and John Levy. And just over the course of my whole career, I've been going in, you know, my, I think on ER, I said one word, but yeah, I've been going in at least once for pretty much everything they've done together over the years, whether I booked it or not. So a lot of, a lot of my casting relationships came from that showcase originally. And then of course you have to prove, prove that you can hold your own in an audition and on set to keep that relationship going. How are auditions taking place now? Is it all by zoom? Oh, it's uh, it's a lot of self tapes. So 
you know, we all, (laughs) all of us working actors have a setup at home with some kind of light and a stand where we can record ourselves on our phone and you have to find a, find a reader. So like I have this elaborate setup where I put my laptop on top of my cat tree (laughs) and my best friend, either friends here or my best friend in Connecticut who I went to school, active school with will read with me over zoom while I tape myself on my phone. And then, you know, we edit it. And so we're, we're doing a lot more of the, uh, the work, the lighting and sound and editing work than we normally would for auditions. Wow. And I was just talking to my husband about this. Like, obviously, when I audition in a casting office, they can give me some direction. They decide which take or takes they want to send. And here, I'm doing all of that. So I'm just spending a lot more time staring at my own face, which is probably not healthy. But we're making it work. Right. (laughs) So I don't know if things are going to go back. I'm a trial lawyer by day. And Mm. we used to do everything in court in person. and. Yeah. To positions in person. And now it's all by Zoom. And I think people are starting to realize that you really don't need to be in person for a lot of this stuff, including routine court appearances. You can just zoom in. So I think society is going to be doing some self reflection mm-hmm. once the pandemic ends, if it ever ends, yeah. as to what really is necessary in terms of in person contact. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Do you, like, do you feel like anything is lost? Do you feel like it really is? equally effective to do those processes and court appearances by Zoom? Or do you think anything is lost? Well, when it's a routine matter that it's just me and the judge, and there's almost, it's almost like they're rubber stamping something, that is clearly a circumstance where you don't need a face-to-face appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I really worry about is the jury trial situation. Yeah. If you need to tell a story, and you know this better than anybody as a professional storyteller, Being, especially with your theater background, imagine if theater was all by Zoom. I, you'd have a revolt on your hands. Yeah. There's really something special that happens when there's this face to face, or even if you're at a distance, but you're in the room, you feel the weight of Mm -hmm. whatever is being talked about in the room. And without that face to face contact, there's definitely something that is lost. Absolutely. I mean, having served on a jury, I know that I spent a lot of time watching people's reactions when they were not the ones talking, watching the defendant's reactions while the attorneys were talking, you know, while witnesses were testifying. I I would hate for that to happen in I don't know how you could do it in a in a context where you didn't have control over who you were watching or how closely or, you know, just like you said, being able to feel the energy shift in that room. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot like theater. There's really something to being physically in a space with other people all experiencing the same thing that you just can't get digitally. And that goes for auditions too, you know? Yeah. And it really makes me sad thinking about Broadway because I think Mm. Broadway productions, I can't think of a better example of how imperative it is to be there in person for a Broadway production. Mm-hmm. I watched Hamilton on TV a while back yep. and it, it was fine. But, you know, whatever it is, Wicked or whatever Broadway production, when I'm there in person at a Broadway musical, I am crying at the end. Whether it's sad Mm -hmm. or happy, it doesn't matter. When you see that vulnerability of those folks on stage just putting everything into that performance and you're there to witness it and you know it's never going to be repeated. Yep. 
This is a singular, unique experience that will never be repeated. That's what brings me to tears. And I, I just worry about Broadway yeah. and, and all of those folks. When are they going to come back? And I see a lot of small theater in LA, a lot of theater. See, I'm participating in a lot of theater in LA. And it's the same thing. God, it's been obviously since at least March since I've seen or been a part of a live performance. And when I watched Hamilton, <laughs> it's sort of, I had the same reaction. And also it like woke up my inner actor who had been sort of dormant. And I, you know, we watched it at night. It ended. My husband was like, okay, I'm going to bed. And I was at like full performance mode, like ready <laughs> to step on stage. And I had to, it took me a couple of days to get sort of live performer Rebecca to go back into hibernation. It was hard. It was, I was like, I didn't anticipate <laughs> that it would, it would do that. And it, it was like, I was just sitting on my couch, like as though places had just been called. And um, it was a weird, <laughs> it was a weird feeling. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I, I've done some research in terms of prior interviews that you've done, so I know a little bit about your upbringing, but mm -hmm. can you tell me a little more about your portal into the arts as it relates to your family and your childhood? Because it sounds like your parents were pretty artsy folks themselves. Yes, my parents, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering, you know, how, wh where is the point you know, I, I call it the portal where you knew that this was it for you. This is where you were going. And how did that happen? Well, my parents are both classically trained singers and have been my entire life. They've always been involved with choruses and they've done some theater. And, you know, speaking of the pandemic, this is the longest my parents have gone without performing in my, my whole life. They're really struggling too, because choral groups and singing groups are um, also among the last that are going to be able to come back because of the nature of that yeah. work. And so they're having a hard time too. But so I grew up in, in a very musical household and occasionally they would do, they would do live performances where they needed kids. And so I was in a production of Carousel. I was one of the snow children in a production of Carousel that my parents chorus did. Hmm. I mean, I think one of the moments, one of the portal moments for me was we were at a, a venue called the Garden State Art Center in New Jersey that's now called something else. You know, some company bought it. I don't know what it is. But it was the biggest venue I'd ever performed in at that point as a kid. It was it feels like a thousand people. It probably isn't that big. But in the opening moment of the show, I was on the carousel, which was being like physically turned by ropes by members of the crew. <laughs> and I was like sitting on a carousel horse. And I remember the curtain coming up onto this huge audience. And I just got that that wave of energy that you get from a live audience. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it was just like, like someone hit a huge gong in my brain. <laughs> it was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. There's a few moments, but that's definitely one of them. It's interesting that you, you look back on Carousel as the portal because now how old were you when you did that? Probably eight. Eight years old. Because that, I mean, the music from that show is not really accessible for kids, in my opinion. It's <laughs> very... It's dark. Yeah. I know firsthand because I went to see my oldest daughter perform in Carousel in high school. And I was there literally for every performance. I probably watched the play at least eight or 10 times and mm -hmm. filmed it and took pictures and, and listened to the songs. And it, it was always moving for me because whenever your kids are performing, it's, it's, it's special. But I did notice that it's not really easy. 
it's not like they're singing pop songs up there. No, no, certainly not. So uh, interesting that an eight-year-old would connect with that and have that be inspiring. But you know what's funny is like, I was also a huge fan of the Muppet Show. I mean, that's another portal moment that I talk about all the time is Mm. I was age-wise in the sweet spot for the Muppet Show. So I got to see, you know, it was a portrayal of a bunch of people slash animals (laughs) working in a theater, making live theater every week. That's what that show was. Mm Mm-hmm. And I went back in high school, a bunch of friends and I would find old Muppet shows on VHS and watch them. And they were filled with like sex references and drug references. The Muppet (laughs) show was dirty. And I didn't know. And I just was some point said to my dad, like, I can't believe you let me watch this. And he was like, you didn't know what was going on. And I loved it. So I think good art, not all of it but sometimes can work on several levels so that, you know, even if kids are not fully appreciating, thank God, what's happening in Carousel, the music is beautiful. There's comedy. You know, it's about a fair. Kids love a fair. Right. don't realize that it's about like abuse and death (laughs) and all of the other stuff that I didn't realize was in there until I saw it when I was much older. That's funny. Yeah, The Muppet Show did have some innuendo in there, especially with Miss Piggy and Kermit. Yes, and the the band was ma- talked about drugs all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was, you know, grown-ups making that show. I connected with that show because it was almost like SNL for kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, know, you got this sense that they were working on it all week, and, and it was- Yeah, that's a good way to put it kind of razzle dazzle type of stuff and sketch you know those the muppet show segments were sketches exactly yeah it's fun as you may have noticed there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes and for many of them we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place our newsletter you can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join it's not fancy just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. Another show I wanted to talk to you about is Better Things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I watched that with my wife all four seasons. I understand it's been picked up for a fifth. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Thank goodness. It's one of those shows that I'm so glad is out there because talk about subtlety. We were talking about subtle comic performances elicited from Lynn Shelton and performed by you. But there's a lot of subtlety to this show, Better Things, and I think it's a mix of darkness and sadness about where Pamela is in her life and, mm-hmm. and how she's been let down by the men in her life, mm-hmm. but also this lightheartedness with these friends that she has, including you. And I think it's just brilliantly pulled off, doing no small part to the kids. Yeah. And the casting, talk about amazing performances. Yeah. How did you get involved with Better Things? And was there a connection to Pamela Adlon that facilitated that? Yes. And also that, like Shameless was, and like Marin, was just an audition. So Hmm. that brilliant casting director's name is Felicia Pisano. She is now uh, a producer on the show Hmm. on Better Things. She and Pam have had her, she also cast Californication, which Pam was a regular on. So she and Pam have known each other for a long, long time. Hmm. And Felicia is another one who's been calling me in for years. I worked on Californication playing a casting director, sort of Felicia likes to cast me sort of as herself yeah, or as someone who works in the industry on Better Things I Play, Sam's manager 
or I was Sam's manager. So Felicia brought me in. It was it was a brand new script. Obviously, the pilot hadn't been shot. And so nobody, you know, that's always an interesting audition situation because nobody knows what the show is. Even the people making it don't necessarily know what it is yet. They're kind of looking for people to help them fill that out. And that show, Pam, I don't know if it's Pam or Felicia or what, but it, it was a little bit different in that usually when you audition, you get sent the material called Sides, you know, a few days ahead of time so that you can learn the lines and decide what you want to do with it. And with better things, the instruction was no sides ahead of time, show up 15 minutes before your audition time. So you have time to look at the material and everybody read the same material. So it was just one or two scenes. Everybody got the same stuff. Hmm. And it was just, I think for Pam by way of Felicia to get a sense of everyone, get a feel for who everyone was as an actor and decide kind of who she wanted to put together. So I went in and read that. I think Felicia gave me one other scene to read, which was, I don't know. I don't remember. But um, I did the audition. We got a call a day or two later saying, you're going to be in the show. We just don't know who you're going to be yet, Um, which is also unusual. And then a bit later, I found out that I was going to play Tressa, uh, Sam's manager, talent manager. I did. I was booked for one episode. It was season one, episode four, where Sam is up for the pilot. And after that, it turned into something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks later, Felicia called me. She texted me on a Sunday and she said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, nothing. <laughs> she said, you want to come be in another scene? And from there, Tressa was sort of folded into Sam and the Fox family, you know, home life. And, uh, and it's been going that way ever since. Whenever I talk about Pamela Adlon with my wife, and uh, she's wondering who I'm talking about, I say, remember Cokie Smurf? And she's like, oh. <laughs> Cokie Smurf. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I called herself Cokie Smurf on Californication. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was actually thinking about this when we were talking about Lynn Shelton because Pam Adlon directs every episode of Better Things since season two. And um, she also loves that awkward sort of silence, awkward human situations. She says like, she she says like, let's sit in the fart of this. Like something (laughs) happens. And she just wants you to sit there with the discomfort yeah. of it. And she wants that on camera, which is it's not like fast paced, clean, really polished TV moments. Like she wants awkwardness and and yeah. the in-between moments, which I think is also something that Lynn appreciated. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's what I was trying to encapsulate with my impression of the show when we first started this chapter, there's something subtle to it. And I think it's the the pauses and the awkwardness that she leans into mm-hmm. rather than runs away from and tries to edit out. It's like, let's yeah. lean into this. And the awkward conversations that she has with her daughters, mm-hmm. uh, where you're just like, oh, oh my yeah. gosh. I've, and the empathy that you feel for Pam yeah. in those situations where she's dealing with it completely alone, but uh, an awesome series. Yeah. And the kids, I mean, it's hard to call them kids now because they've grown up before all of our eyes, but they're, they're just amazing. They're such good actors. They're such good human beings. And like, I just, I, I just adore each one of them. And it's been a, a real treat to watch them kind of grow up and come into themselves as actors and as people. Yeah. You know, they're going special places, those kids. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of season four, 
I got the impression from one of the last scenes that there might be a relationship brewing between you and mm-hmm. one of the friends. Was, was I off on that interpretation or is that... I don't know. I haven't seen season five yet. That's certainly the direction. I mean, I was thrilled to have a potential love interest. That is certainly the direction that it seems to be going. You never know with Better Things and with Pam. Like there have been, I think one of the things people love about the show is that something will start and then it'll fall away because that's kind of how life is. You think things are going in one direction and then it, you know, something turns you in a different direction. I hope, I mean, selfishly, I love Judy Gold, who plays Kaya, who Tressa, you know, had a sort of developing flirtation with at the end of season four. Mm Mm-hmm. I would just love to spend more time with Judy on set. And so for that reason, selfishly, I hope the relationship develops. I also think it would be so much of last season was about divorce, was about people in Sam's sort of inner friend circle dealing with various stages of divorce and breakup. And so as you sort of said, Sam is kind of perpetually being let down by the men in her life. So I think it's kind of lovely that we get to see something beautiful starting up between two women on the show, you know? Yeah. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. I hope, I hope selfishly and in terms of the show, that that we get to see a little bit more of Tressa and Kaya next season. Fingers crossed. Well, Pam, if you're listening, I, <laughs> I fully support that idea. So, we have texted that to her. She knows. <laughs> yeah. That is what we were. She knows at least that that's what Judy and I want. That's awesome. Are you still shooting Coop and Cammy, or is that in between seasons or what's going on with that show? No. So fin- Coop and Cammy, we had three episodes left in season two when the pandemic hit. And um, as far as I know, the the episodes we've shot are going to be it for that show. Unfortunately, I think a lot of shows that would have continued are not going to continue because of just the logistics and economics of the fallout of all of this, which is a real shame. Right. But the kids, the kids are all like seven feet tall by now. You know, (laughs) one of the challenges with making a show like that is kids at that age grow fast. Well, yeah. And also the challenges of a multi-cam show yeah. with, with COVID. I, I don't think you could really pull off the, all of the testing you would need to do to do that safely in a multi-cam situation it might be tough. I've done a couple episodes of the CBS show Mom with Allison Janney and with a bunch of amazing people. I saw that. Since, yeah. since um, production started to come back. And it is challenging. It is really different. It's, uh, like you said, a lot of testing a lot more masks. <laughs> it's hard to do comedy wearing masks. But I mean, that that production, they've done an amazing job. I felt safer there than I do at the grocery store. You know, and the show works. It's still funny. I think people are dying for some new television to watch. So I'm glad we're, we've been able to do it. Hopefully there will be more for me and more for them and more for everyone. But yes, it is challenging, I think, especially with kids to do a multicam show right now. Was it challenging to deal with Anna Ferris leaving and the scramble to reshape the show to deal with that narrative? I don't know. I can't speak to that because I obviously only joined this season and it seemed like a remarkably well-oiled machine given that they just lost a lead cast member and were dealing with COVID. Right. So I didn't see any scrambling. I can't speak to what happened backstage, but it's such a such a, an incredible ensemble. 
both in front of the camera and behind the scenes, that they certainly seem to have handled it. I think they all miss her. I think they're all sad. You know, I've I heard nothing but love and affection for her, you know, in all of the talks surrounding the show coming back this season. Mm-hmm. But it didn't and I didn't see any scrambling. So if there was any, it happened away from my eyes. I just got to be part of a great show. And not to put you on the spot or have you answer a question you don't want to address, but mm-hmm. going back to better things with Louis C.K. being a creator of the show, mm-hmm. are, are you able to talk about how the incident, I will call it, or the revelation about Louis C.K., how it impacted the show in any way in terms of his involvement? I've heard interviews with Pamela on this. She seems to be really open about it. Yeah. And maybe she's the best one to just have her deal with that. But I'm just curious because I know he's a comic genius and he's yeah. worked really well with Pam over the years, but then you have this you know, Me Too moment happen. How do you deal with that as a creative element of the show? Yeah. I mean, I think Pam probably is the best person to speak to it because it, she's really who it impacted the most. You know, aside from getting to speak that writing, that incredible writing that they created together in the first two seasons, I was on set with him once and, you know, didn't, didn't talk to him much. He was mostly behind the scenes and, mm-hmm. and, you know, handling things at a level above what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It really affected Pam. I mean, it, it, it drastically affected her writing process. She had to learn to create and run a writer's room. And just, I think she, I know she took it really seriously, really to heart, both in terms of, you know, its impact on him, its impact on potential impact on the show, on the world. I just felt for her so much in that time. Yeah. You know, I'm, I know she's, she's talked about it openly. I also hate that it fell on her and on so many women to talk about it when the men involved in it got to kind of slink away and be silent. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. they're the ones who should have been answering for it. At the same time, in terms of the show, I love that in the last two seasons and, and will happen again in season five, now it really is hers and people really can appreciate that everything that they love about the show is because of her. It didn't change drastically. If anything, it got better, you know, since season three. And I think I always felt like, I, I don't mean to diminish his role in it because, you know, they were collaborators, obviously, on the show and, and long before that. But I always felt like she didn't get enough credit for the show being what it is mm-hmm. and for her influence on his show, of which she was an executive producer, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm glad that people understand now that it really was always Pam's vision that made the show what it is. Yeah. And that she's gotten to, to really be the big boss, if that makes sense. I, I think you really nailed it when you talked about how the show for sure did not get worse when he was out of the picture. In fact, it improved. Yeah. And the way that I think it improved was that it got more personal Mm -hmm. and you can tell her fingerprint, emotional fingerprint was on these scenes and on the writing and on the production. I paid very close attention to it. Obviously there was big news Mm -hmm. and I had been a huge fan of Pam for a long time, big fan of Louis CK for a long time. So I was really paying attention to better things. What is going to happen here. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. It just it's a very special show and um I hope it goes on beyond season 5. 
I do too. Again, selfishly, I think, you know, I, I think it has led to people understanding how brilliant Pam is and has always been and how much potential she has to tell her own stories and be a part of other people's stories, how much she can bring to that. And so I think there's, you know, no limit to what she can do from here. I just hope she keeps also doing better things <laughs> because I love being a part of it. So what's next for you? You're on for season five for better things, yes. but, and uh, Coop and Cammy is no longer shooting. So what's next? That's a great question. I think we're all waiting to find that out. Like, I think we're in a really interesting time because the business is doing what the business does and starting to think about pilots and what's going to come next. And that whole process is ramping up. I'm auditioning like crazy again from home, which is, which is a little <laughs> bit of a strange feeling. And, um, I'm as anxious as anyone else to see what's next. I'm so glad that I have better things to look forward to another season because that feels like, you know, something we're all going to be something familiar that we can all look forward to and anything familiar, I think, right in this in this bizarre landscape that we've all been living in is something to be grateful for. But I'm also as, as sad as I am that Coop and Cami is done. I am looking forward to that question of what's next and to just having, you know, not knowing what what my schedule is going to be for the foreseeable future and being open to possibility. And I've been enjoying reading for really great projects. There's so many projects, especially with women, a lot more diversity in the kinds the people behind the projects that I'm reading for, which is really exciting. So um, I don't know what's next yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I am on mom next week. Okay. If depending on when this comes out, so there might be some more mom in my future, hopefully, and then we'll see. Yeah, we are going to probably launch in January, unfortunately. So okay, well then go back and watch my episodes of Mom. <laughs> okay. Now uh, I do try to ask a couple of questions about practical advice for my listeners who mm -hmm. may be looking to get into acting. Maybe they're young uh, high school students or in college, and they're looking for ways to get into the industry. And it sounds like you went the traditional route, which is you went to school for it. Yeah. And uh, you made connections in school, in drama school, that really are still connections you have to this day. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you have for young people if you were in a room full of high school students or college students and they really want to act and they want to do it professionally? What advice would you have for them? I mean, I am a surprise, surprise. I'm a fan of the way I did it. I feel like I was at the tail end of, uh, the time when that was a way to do it. I feel like not long after me, the thing is do your own YouTube series, do you, you know, make your own content. And I'm jealous of people who have that instinct because it's, it, that's just not where my brain goes. At the same time, I, I really do believe in getting the best training you possibly can as an actor, classical, old school training, because for me anyway, that's what I keep coming back to. I think that's what people come to me for, you know, I can do both comedy and drama. I think what training does is it stretches you beyond your comfort zone so that you can do much more than you would otherwise be able to do. And that means that you become sort of a go-to person for, for all kinds of things, for casting. Like I think, I think what being a well-trained actor gives you is that you're someone casting directors and directors and writers and creators of all kinds trust with their material so that even when they don't know what it's going to be, they trust that you're going to do something interesting. You're going to bring something interesting to it. Right. And um, I, you know, I think that's what has kept me working all this time on so many different kinds of projects. And so while I am all for making your own series and establishing your voice sort of as an auteur, I also think there's tremendous value in 
getting old school classical training, becoming the best, most well-rounded actor, and really knowing yourself as an actor as much as you can so that you can then bring that to whatever you work on, whether it's, whether it's your own projects or someone else's. Great advice. So it sounds like the training and also the connections you make in those experiences, the communities you form are helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have certainly leaned on my actor friends who have, who have sort of a similar path. None of our, no, no two actors paths are, are the same, but when we have sort of similar backgrounds and experiences, I've certainly reached out to them in moments when I have felt like this is never going to end or like I was just, you know, aimless in all of this. I have certainly reached out to them and leaned on them and, and we've, we've helped each other through. Yeah. So those, those relationships and contacts that you make in that process are also huge. Well, Rebecca, people can find you on social media at the Rebecca Metz on Twitter and Instagram, right? Yes. Yes. I'm not on TikTok. I've sort of drawn the line at Twitter and Instagram. We'll see <laughs> if I ever branch out to another one. Yeah. But uh, that's good for me for now. Awesome. Well, I'll ask my listeners to go follow you and also watch you on Mom and thank you. whatever else you have coming up next. Hopefully, Better Things Season 5 is able to launch uh, shortly. Yep. It'll, it'll be a minute. I think we're going to start shooting when this is all over so that we can do it, do it right. and hug each other because I don't know what that set would be like without hugging. Right. But um, before too terribly long, we will have a better thing, season five. Awesome. Rebecca, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. It was really nice talking with you. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>